You've got opposing opposing a matrix here. Uh, here with Ralph Epperson. Hello, Ralph. Uh, Ralph, where'd you go? You disappeared. I, I clicked off because they have, they showed the smaller one on your chin, and I didn't think you'd want it there. Oh, okay. There was a picture you could say that I'm. I got Ralph Epperson in my beard. It's like you like beards sometimes attract. You know, you get all sorts of crazy things in it. And I knew you were going to say that, so I decided I better click that off. So you say, "Look at that! What's on my back beard?" I guess I didn't shave or wash this morning. There's Ralph Epperson there. It's interesting you brought that up because when my grandkids were young, they would always. I was the only one in the family that had a beard, and they would always go, "Grandpa, what's in your beard?" And I'd say, "Rats live in there." (laughs) <laughs> and, and so they, they'd be feeling around. There's no rats there. I said, well, they're on vacation. They're in Rio de Janeiro right now. <laughs> and so I had the rats going all over the world. So <laughs> anyway, they, they got wise after they got older. <laughs> well, that's, I, I clicked it off. I'm back to the that's, upper hand corner. That's, that's, that's a good illustration. Maybe we get wiser as we get older. And maybe after listening to this, some folks will be a little wiser after uh, – I certainly hope so. There's, as I said we, before we started, there's two things I want to bring to their attention to specifically pay attention to. It's very, very interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, since it's 11 13, wow, well, it's the 13th. 11 13, 2019, Ralph. Uh, let's, uh, let's get started and uh, let the folks know what they need to know. Well, I, I'm an Epperson. Louis Epperson's always said you've got to fear Wednesday the 13th. More so than you do Friday the 13th. So we'll be lucky and we'll avoid that catastrophe. But after I finish today, your listeners might think it was a catastrophe. We'll see. (laughs) The subject on today's uh, uh, program is what? We're going to be talking about abolishing the Federal Reserve. Yes. And it's two hours long. And I would urge your listeners to pay attention and then get a, it's on the internet right now and you can watch it later and also you're going to put it up on the internet. Watch it several times because there's some very important things that you need to know about our past on this DVD. You know, I just briefly co- covered two of them, but there's many, many more. I want to talk about the, the Great Depression or crash of 1929. John Kenneth Galbraith was the major economist of the, uh, of the day. Uh, he was an uh, economic advisor, I think, all the way through Roosevelt and also uh, probably up to Gerald Ford and Nixon for many, many years. And he wrote a book, and you'll see the title of it, and I'm paraphrasing it, uh, what he said, but he said, no one caused the crash in 20, 1929. Well, there's no other economist that said that except one, and he's probably, because he knows the truth, he knows who caused it. And that economist is called A. Ralph Epperson, a brilliant economist named A. Ralph Epperson in Tucson, Arizona, because he knows that it was the privately owned Federal Reserve that caused it, and he's going to tell you how they did it. 
good deal. Well, thank you, Mr. A. Ralph Epperson, and we're we're sitting with bated breath, wanting to hear all about this. Well, we're going to do that, and secondly, Thomas Jefferson tried to warn us he was our third president, and I'll just paraphrase the quote. He said, if you create a central bank, you'll have perpetual wars. Huh? Mm -hmm. Why would we have perpetual wars if we create a bank? You're going to find out why. Because in 1913, we created a central bank called the privately owned Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve is not federal. It's private. Donald Trump has no control over the private reserve. He can't do anything with it. They are completely independent. Right. And they caused the crash of 29. They caused wars. And so since 1913, when we created this private reserve, have we had nearly perpetual wars? I would say so, yeah, almost through the whole 20th century. Yes. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Gee, he tried to warn us, but we're not listening, are we? Mm -mm. So pay attention to that and remember that and it Memorize that quotation and use it yourself as you argue or discuss anything about the private reserve because you're going to learn today abolishing the federal, the federal reserve, the private reserve, is not uh, just a thought. It's obligatory. It's mandatory. It's that important. Mm -hmm. We've got to abolish the private reserve. Ron Paul this congressman tried repeatedly, and finally he got a majority of the House representatives to approve that we audit the Federal Reserve. But, of course, the Senate would go along with it. I wonder why. Mm -hmm. We'll get some answers to those two questions later on during the two-hour program called Abolish the Federal Reserve. Now, you wanted to talk about something about a hat. Yeah, yeah, you pointed something out to me, and uh, I'd like you to to explain it to other people because there's a lot of people that have a flag like this and there's a lot of people that wear a hat like this and and uh, you explained something to me and uh, well I something I never knew would you care to yeah. show us the hat yes I would here it is right here okay now hold it steady there's a snake a coiled, and it says, don't tread on me, which means we're going to bite you if you tread on me. But if you'll notice, look at it, you'll see that the snake is coiled three times to form three sixes. Six, six, six. Yeah, it is. And the letters in don't tread on me total 13, the number of Lucifer, Satan, the devil. This uh -huh. was a popular flag during the American Revolution. We flew this, and the patriots were marched with this flag. Don't tread on me. But the people didn't count the 666 or the 13, did they? No, uh-uh. Think a little bit about what that flag or where, where, where it came from. Well, there was a group called the, uh, the, the uh, Culpeper uh, Militia. Um, and I guess that was back during the Revolutionary War, and those, that was the, basically their battle flag. Yeah, so. well, that's where it came from. But it, but it was a, it, and you'll see it uh, even today uh, in patriotic rallies, people carrying that side, that flag, you know, as a flag, put on a stick and carrying it, and of course it waves in beautifully, and you can see it. A six six six, and don't tread on me. Thirteen letters. Isn't that interesting? But what yeah. we're talking about 
that they've been assist conspiracies all around us. And one of the major planks they've got is the ability to control the economy and plan wars. Right. And learn why. And you learn what really caused the depression of 1929. It's incredible once you figure it out. So John Kenneth Dauber said, no one caused the crash of 1929. Oh, yeah. Well, one economist said that he knows, and you're going to learn what he found out to show that Dauber knew and was lying to us. Mm -hmm. Yep, this whole time, this whole time, men, men have died in needless wars. May I just give out before you start my website? Oh, yeah. Go with it. free willy-nilly. Go ahead and do what you got to do. www. of course, Ralph, R-A-L-P-H, R-A-L-P is in Petunia H, and then there's a dash, Epperson, E-P-P is in Peter, E-P-P-E-R-S-O-N, of course, then .com, Ralph-Epperson.com. You can go there. I don't even, I don't ask you to buy anything. I will ask you to go there and browse, and mm -hmm. you'll learn how serious this problem is. It's enough to fill up two or three, a 13-page catalog. That's how much this conspiracy has revealed itself to people that dig it out like I do. Yeah. There, Ralph-Epperson.com and browse. It's up to you to buy if you wish to. You don't have to, but I'm telling you, it, it would be a good ex exercise for you to do. Ralph-Epperson.com and they're and they're pretty good quality too. Um, the DVDs, so you know you're not buying junk. You're buying something that that looks good. It's presented well, and it um, it's just it's just good quality. What can I say? Um, so you know, there a lot of times people market stuff, and you know, you get it home, and it's 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 something less desire less than desirable. But no, your DVDs are in, in uh, perfect working order and. Uh, very easy to follow too. You make it so that a very simple person could uh, could uh, understand it. A very uneducated person could understand your DVDs. If I may, and just in closing, my whole goal has been for 50 years to produce material that the average American can understand. When I was teaching at a community college, my students fill out, and I'll end with this story: fill out an anonymous questionnaire that my dean sent out without my. I didn't know about it. But he called me in the office at the end of my uh, quarter. I said, I want you to read these. And the most common comment made was, Mr. Epperson, to make complex things simple. And right. I said, what is education other than making complex things simple? Mm -hmm. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. so that's what I've done. I believe you'll see that, especially on this two-hour Abolish the Federal Reserve DVD that you're going to now play and then... Uh, uh, if people can watch it. And by the way, I'll just make a comment. Please, if you have any questions or comments after this, and call me, get in touch. Uh, my phone number is on the uh, website and my email address, uh, my home address, everything else. Just get in touch. And I want to thank you once again, David, for your voluntary uh, asking of me to come on your program once again to, to talk about some very heavy issues that need to be examined. Thank you so very oh. much. My very, very much my pleasure, Ralph. And uh, we're not finished yet. Okay. We're talking about other things we're going to work on too. So, <laughs> okay. David, it's a real pleasure. God bless you. Have a good day and have a good program. Okay, you too. Here we go. Abolish the Federal Reserve. Subtitled: The Federal Reserve Made Simple. A presentation of Publius Productions.
delivered on July 4, 2011. My name is Ralph Epperson, and I will be the one presenting this material today. I'm a writer, researcher, and historian who has studied over 200 years of America's history for nearly 50 years of my life. I'm a graduate of the Business College at the University of Arizona, but what I will be discussing today was not presented to me while I was a student there. It has come from independent research into the subjects I've written about. I published my book entitled The Unseen Hand in 1985, and it is still being printed today. And in fact, much to my surprise, I was asked by publishers in six foreign nations for permission to publish it in their language, in their country, and I gladly provided it. But the information that I will be discussing today, as I said, was not offered to me in my business courses, but in fact, I was generally presented with just the opposite information from what I've discovered in my independent study. And as I am hoping, you will begin to see that those who gave us the Federal Reserve System did not want us to learn the truth for a very important reason. Let me start by explaining that all of us are teachers in America's largest university. Everyone in America is our student body. Every building in America is our campus. And every conversation we have is a classroom lecture. In other words, we need to become educated so that we can educate others. And the reason that we need to be educated is simply because America is in serious trouble. And the solution is education. So this DVD will be a class entitled The Federal Reserve Made Simple because I believe that the average American knows little about the Federal Reserve and how it does not serve our interests. And that is why I prepared this presentation. A good place to start would be in the scriptures to show that two enormous truths are revealed in its pages. The first is from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. For the love of money is the root of all evil. Notice that it is not money itself. It is the love of money. Money has no morality. It is neutral. But it does have the ability to be of service to mankind. But it can also be used to destroy, as we shall soon see. And the second comes from Proverbs chapter 22, verse 7. The borrower is servant to the lender. We are going to talk about the borrowers and the lenders during this presentation. I believe the next thing we must do is define the two words directly related to money. The first is inflation. Inflation allows you to carry money in a, money in a basket and your goods in a wallet. Inflation allows you to live in a more expensive neighborhood without moving. Inflation is the price we pay for all of those government benefits we thought were free. I want you to know that this is the last time I'll buy some jokes from off of the Internet. 
Uh, those jokes are not very funny, but they do show that inflation does have a price to pay. First of all, let me give you a traditional definition of the word. This comes from page 13 of a booklet entitled The American Economic System and Your Part in It, published by the Advertising Council. This is how they define the word. Inflation is a rise in the general level of prices. Then it goes on to explain that the that there were three basic causes of inflation. The first is when consumers, businesses, and governments spend too heavily on available goods and services, this high demand can force prices up. The second way is if costs of production rise and producers try to maintain profit levels, prices must increase. And the third is the lack of competition between producers can also contribute to inflation. In other words, there's but one cause of inflation, and that is people. We, the people, are the guilty ones who cause inflation. Notice that there is no mention of the real cause, and that cause is the Federal Reserve, as I will now try to prove. Let me give you the dictionary definition of the word. It is defined as an increase in the quantity of money. Inflation always produces a rise in the price level. Therefore, inflation has a cause and an effect. The cause is an increase in the money supply, and the effect is a rise in the price level. Notice that the people do not have the ability to print money to increase the quantity. When people increase the money supply by printing it, it is called counterfeiting. And it is a crime against property rights. Money is property, and when someone counterfeits the money supply, it decreases the value of the real money, meaning the property in money in circulation. And it is a form of stealing. Stealing is defined as taking property from another without permission. And in America, stealing is punished by our legal system. In other words, counterfeiting is a crime called stealing. But when the Federal Reserve increases the money supply by printing money, it is not called counterfeiting. It is called funding the deficit, even though the two crimes are identical. Funding the deficit is a crime against property rights and should be punished, just like you and I would be if we increase the money supply. When I was in my business college economics classes at the University of Arizona, my professors explained that this dictionary definition was wrong. I was taught that inflation was caused by cost push, demand pull, unions, shortages, housewives, etc. In other words, we really do not know what causes inflation. All we know is that people cause it, but we don't know how they do it. That is what 
I was being taught. Yet we learn in the dictionary definition that it is caused by an increase in the money supply. So one of these definitions is in error. Someone is not telling the truth. So if the people cannot increase the money supply without being guilty of a crime, we must look for some agency that can increase the money supply without being guilty of a crime. And we shall soon identify the culprit. There's another word we must define, and that is the word deflation. Deflation is is defined as a decrease in the money supply causing prices to drop. Perhaps the best way I can explain how this works is by using this simple illustration. I live in Tucson, Arizona. Let's just say that a fleet of helicopters fly over the city at 3 in the morning and drop out billions of American dollar bills. The next morning when people find the new money, they will want to spend it and they will visit stores in the city. They will want to purchase items that they could not afford in the past. When great numbers of people show up at a store with a lot of money, the people bid up the prices of the available goods. Let's say that the people are trying to buy a high-definition television set with a regular price of $1,000. When the people show up, the first bid will be for $1,000, the next will be for $1,100, the next $1,200, etc., until the price could be as high as maybe four or $5,000. It all depends on how much money has been found by the highest individual bidder. In other words, prices will increase with an increase in the money supply. And prices can really rise high if there are billions of new dollars in circulation. Prices could reach into the millions of dollars for the television set. As I said, it just depends on how many dollars were dropped from the air. There is a word to describe this condition. It's called Hyperinflation defined as excessive inflation causing a large increase in prices. Then let's just say that one week later, those who dropped all of the new money from the helicopters come to collect it because it was counterfeit. They would also gather up all of the real money that they could find because they would have to certify that it is not counterfeit as well. The result of all this is that there will be a rapid a rapid drop in the money supply, and to induce sales, merchants will lower their prices. It is even possible for the price to drop below the original price. Now, there is a reason that nations hyperinflate their currency. It was described by John Maynard Keynes, called by many as the most influential economist of the 20th century. This is what he wrote in his book entitled The Economic Consequences of the Peace in 1920. Lenin, the communist leader of Russia, is said to have declared that the best way to debauch the capitalist system, I'm sorry, to destroy the capitalist system was to debauch the currency. And then he told us how to do that. By a continuing process of inflation. So notice here, 
that he is defining inflation just like the dictionary does an increase in the quantity of money. So by this process of inflation, government can confiscate secretly and unobserved an important part of the wealth of their citizens. By this method, they not only confiscate, but they confiscate arbitrarily. And while the process impoverishes many, it actually enriches some. There is no subtler, no sure means of overturning the existing basis of society than to debauch the currency. The process engages all the hidden forces of economic law on the side of destruction. Now notice here that Mr. Cage just said that inflation is an economic law, which means that prices will rise whenever the money supply is increased. It will happen each time it is practiced on every continent and in all economic systems. Now let me return to the Keynes quotation. He continued, and does it in a manner not one man in a million is able to diagnose. Let me try and summarize what Mr. Keynes just taught us. Nikolai Lenin, the communist, said, if you want to destroy the capitalist system, you must first debauch the currency. And communists worldwide want to destroy the capitalist system. And the way to do that is through the printing press. Print large quantities of money and pump it into the marketplace, and it will destroy the value of money. And to show you that Lenin did debauch the currency by the process known as inflation, he increased the quantity of money nearly 20,000 times from 1921 to 1923. This is a cartoon that appeared in the Chicago Tribune newspaper on April the 21st, 1934. Notice the year, 1934. And it provides in a capsule form just what this strategy of the communist is. It shows in cartoon form a drawing of what appears to be Leon Trotsky, a fellow communist leader besides Nikolai Lenin in Russia, sitting at a large board with the following quote, Plan of Action for the United States, end quote, written on the top. It says this, spend, spend, spend under the guise of recovery. Bust the government. Blame the capitalists for the failure. Junk the Constitution and declare a dictatorship. Uh, <laughs> uh, that sounds exactly like what is happening in the United States today. Now let me return to the discussion of Lenin's quote. The third thing he said is that inflation will steal from most, but it actually enriches some. And here's why. The poor do not have money, so they're not directly affected. The middle class has its wealth in money, meaning the money they get paid for their labor and which they use to pay their bills. They put whatever they can save into banks, but inflation destroys the value of their money in banks as well. The rich 
do not place their assets in money. They invest in stocks, art, property, etc. So as the value of money decreases, their value in their assets generally rise. That is what Keynes meant. The rich are the ones who benefit the most in periods of hyperinflation. Then he repeats it. The best way to destroy capitalism is to debauch the currency. And then he said that only one in a million would be able to diagnose the problem. But now you know. So you are the one person in a million who understands just how money can be used to destroy. I would also like to point something else out about the economist John Maynard Keynes, because he wanted to destroy the capitalist system as well. Notice here that the real title of his book, The Economic Consequences of the Peace, is The End of Laissez-Faire, which is French for the free enterprise system. So it was not just Lenin who wanted to destroy capitalism. It was John Maynard Keynes as well. This is what he said about the capitalist system. The decadent capitalism in the hands of which we found ourselves after World War I is not a success. It is not intelligent. It is not beautiful. It is not just. It is not virtuous. And it does not deliver the goods. In short, we dislike it and are beginning to despise it. So his writings were intended to support those who wish to destroy the capitalist system. Now, I would like to show you that the ideas of John Maynard Keynes have had effect all over the world. As this presentation was being prepared, nations in various parts of the world have experienced rioting in the streets to protest the cuts in government budgets due to the ideas of Mr. Keynes. Mr. Keynes has advanced the idea that government spending is the answer to the alleged weaknesses of the economy. And governments have increased their entitlement funding, meaning they have increased the amount of money the government spends to give its citizens government handouts. After a while, the government discovers that they cannot find enough ways to fund all of these entitlements, and they start reducing the amount of money they pay the citizen. When the citizens learn that the government is cutting their entitlements, they go to the streets in violent demonstrations protesting the cuts. And all of these nations listened to John Maynard Keynes. This is Dr. Friedrich Hayek, a prominent member of the Austrian School of Economics and a 1974 Nobel Prize winner. This is how he described it. The responsibility for current worldwide inflation rests wholly and squarely with the economists who have embraced the teachings of John Maynard Keynes. It was on the advice and even urging of his pupils that governments have financed the increasing parts of their expenditures by creating money on a scale which every reputable economist before Keynes would have predicted would cause precisely 
the sort of inflation we have got. So we must acknowledge the brilliance of the architect of this strategy to destroy the free enterprise system. Thank you, John Maynard Keynes. The world truly owes you a huge debt of gratitude. Actually, I should say the world truly owes you a huge debt. Now that we know that the communists want to destroy capitalism, I think it is appropriate to discuss where Lenin, the communist, learned how we should do this. This is Karl Marx, the so-called father of communism. And this is the 100th anniversary edition of the Communist Manifesto that he wrote for the Communist Party in 1848. And here, it is in here that he declared that the communists should destroy the value of the money owned by the middle class. This is what he wrote on page 45. The proletariat defined as the working class, the poor, meaning the lowest class in the nation, will use its political supremacy to rest. By degrees, all capital from the bourgeoisie. Now, the bourgeoisie is defined as the middle class, not the very wealthy. And then he tells the communists how to use a list of ten measures that will destroy the capitalist system. I shall concentrate on the fifth one as it has bearing to our study of the Federal Reserve, and this is what he wrote. Number five, centralization of credit in the hands of the state by means of a national bank with an exclusive monopoly. So with the central bank in their hands, the communists could wrest all of the capital from the middle class. And President Woodrow Wilson and the Congress of the United States followed the teaching of the communist Karl Marx in 1913 when they created a national bank with an exclusive monopoly called the Federal Reserve. So the power to destroy by using money to inflate the economy was given to a central bank in the United States just as the communist Karl Marx had instructed our government. Please notice that the communist Marx wanted to use the poor as a way of wresting all of the capital from the middle class, as I said, not the very wealthy. And the reason for that is that it is the very wealthy of a nation who want to destroy the middle class in that nation by the use of a central bank. And the major reason is that the middle class often has collected enough capital to compete with the rich class. And they do so by lowering the price of any product they manufacture. And the very wealthy decided to create an economic system called communism to restrict the ability of the middle class to compete. And that is the way that they did that because they learned to debauch the currency through a central bank. So it has been the very wealthy who are the ones behind the commerce movements of the 19th, 20th, and 21st 
centuries. I cover this in my book entitled The Unseen Hand, and I would once again recommend that you read it. I will provide you with the ample documentation that it is the very wealthy who found the advantages of supporting the communist movement. Let me now provide you with the two recent examples of the use of hyperinflation to destroy. This is a 500 billion, 500 billion denarii bill <laughs> issued as recently as the 1990s in the European nation formerly known as Yugoslavia. The young man who sent it to me as an example of hyperinflation told me that it wouldn't even buy an egg. That is called hyperinflation. A second example of hyperinflation is occurring right now in Zimbabwe, the African nation formerly known as Rhodesia. This is a picture of a Zimbabwean trillionaire, <laughs> trillionaire holding up a 100 trillion Zim dollar in January of 2011. The tourist in Zimbabwe can purchase one for five American dollars. That is also called hyperinflation. Now, I do not know why the government in Rhodesia, or actually Zimbabwe, is hyperinflating their currency, but my guess is that it is because the people in that nation are poor, which means they do not have a lot of money. So the government dissolved, or solved the problem by giving everyone or making everyone a trillionaire then everyone can purchase the goods that they could not afford in the past. Of course, when there's a shortage of goods, no matter how much money you have, there's nothing to buy. This is one of the fallacies of the socialist or communist economy. They think that poverty is abolished by giving everyone money. But they're wrong. Poverty is abolished by increasing the amount of products produced, thereby enabling producers to compete by lowering prices. Producers of goods want their customers to have a living wage so that they can buy their products. The proof of the destruction caused by hyperinflation lies in its results. Unemployment in Zimbabwe has risen to 85 85%. And the gross domestic product has declined from $720 per capita in 2002 to $265 in 2008. Yes, hyperinflation works to destroy. Let me now start the discussion of who in America controls the amount of money in circulation. The Constitution of the United States delegated the authority to make money to Congress. Article 1, Section 8, Clause 5 says this, Congress shall have the power to coin money, coin money, and regulate the value thereof, and fix the standard of weights and measures. First of all, notice that they included this power to coin money in the section in which they set the standard of weights and measures. America uses a foot as a measure of length, and they were saying that there was a nationwide standard of a foot being exactly 
12 inches in length. The reason they wanted it fixed is so that anyone in America could rely on the foot as an equal measurement. A foot in Georgia would be equal to a foot in Arizona. <laughs> However, this was written before the day of the seven-foot centers in professional basketball. A foot, a foot is not a foot when you're over seven feet tall. But our founding fathers were obviously hoping that our dollar would have a constant value anywhere in the United States. But as we are seeing and will continue to see, money does not have a constant value. And that is because the bankers do not want a dollar to have a constant value because the bankers can make a profit as they increase and then decrease the quantity of money as long as they're the ones increasing and decreasing the quantity of money. And strangely enough, they are. I've often wanted to write a national best-selling book on how to make a killing in the stock market. It would only have one page, which would read, <laughs> buy low, sell high. And if you knew which way the market was going to move, because you knew when the money supply would be increased or decreased, you could make a killing in the stock market by buying low and selling high. Now let me quote Article 1, Section 10 of the Constitution. No state, meaning Arizona, Georgia, Louisiana, Michigan, you name it, no state shall coin money or make anything but gold and silver coins a tender in payment of debt. Since the state could not coin money, they were relying on the federal government to do exactly what the Constitution allows them to do, coin money. But only a small percentage of our money in America is coined today. I can remember asking the Attorney General of Arizona in a public forum years ago how I could pay my taxes to the state of Arizona without gold and silver coins in circulation. His answer was, <laughs> listen, listen to this, I don't understand your question. But to be extremely honest with you, I think he did understand. And the tragic thing is that I believe that he knew that every penny collected by the state of Arizona in taxes is being unconstitutionally collected. Now, let me discuss just who does have the power over America's money. This is a book that I was given when I was a student in a class called Money and Banking in the Business College at the University of Arizona. It is called, as you can see, the Federal Reserve System Purposes and Functions, and it was printed by the Federal Reserve System itself. And I want to read just this short paragraph at the beginning of Chapter 1 of the book. Here's what it says function of the Federal Reserve System. An efficient monetary mechanism is indispensable to the steady development of the nation's resources and a rising standard of living. The function of the Federal Reserve System is to foster a flow of credit and money. Notice, foster a flow of money that will facilitate orderly 
economic growth, a stable dollar, and long-run balance in our international payments. Now, let's go back to the Constitution once again. Article 1, Section 8, Clause 5 reads, Congress shall have the power to coin money and regulate the value thereof. So there is no power to delegate this authority to anyone else, meaning a corporation, a state, or the people. Therefore, there is no, no, no power to create a Federal Reserve System. Only Congress shall have the power. But they unconstitutionally gave that power to the Federal Reserve. The book says this. On December 23, 1913, President Woodrow Wilson signed the Federal Reserve Act establishing the Federal Reserve System. That means that Congress, which had no power to create the Federal Reserve, just did so. And President Wilson, who, like Congress, had taken an oath to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution, just ignored his oath of office. But the Congress and the President did it anyway. I found this photograph on the Internet and saved it for the day I would use it. And today is the day I will use it. It shows a young man with a copy of the Constitution and a homemade sign that reads, The Constitution of the United States found in a dumpster behind the Capitol. I believe that this photograph certainly could be referring to the creation of the Federal Reserve in 1913 by President Woodrow Wilson and the Congress. I would now like to discuss the evidence that the Federal Reserve was not this nation's first central bank. We have had at least two central banks before 1913, and I would like to offer you a brief review of the subject. In 1776, the American Revolution was fought against England. In 1791, America created the first central bank of the United States for a period of 20 years. But in 1811, the 20-year charter was not renewed. So the next year, in 1812, by coincidence, by coincidence, England fought the War of 1812 against America. And in 1816, the United States created the second bank of the United States for another 20 years. But in 1836, the 20-year charter it had was not renewed. So in 1837, the European bankers started planning America's Civil War, and in 1861, the Civil War started and ended 24 years later, I'm sorry, four years later in 1865. And to pay for the costs of the war, President Abraham Lincoln issued the greenback dollar, which was not borrowed, but just issued. So the war ended in 1865, and the bankers did not get a third bank of the United States. But to convince the American people to create one, the bankers changed their strategy and started planning bank runs, the first in 1873 and the second in 1893. 
and a third one in 1907. And finally, America created the permanent Federal Reserve in 1913. I believe that it is no accident that each of our first two wars were followed by central banks. Those wars had been planned by the European bankers to force America into the creation of a central bank to pay for them. And each of those two banks were given a 20-year charter because the American people did not want to create a permanent central bank. After the Civil War failed to create a third central bank, the bankers changed their strategy, as I said, to creating bank runs to convince the American people that we needed a permanent central bank. Accusations were raised that the state chartered banks were being run by incompetent bankers, and what we needed was a federal central bank. I think it is now important to give you a simple explanation of what a bank run is to show you how the international bankers use them as a way to convince the American people that America needed a central bank. As, I, as I've said, I live in Tucson, Arizona, and let's just say that nine of my friends and I decide to create a bank called the, <laughs> the last bank of Tucson. Uh, we didn't have any money for capital improvements, but we did get a great price on the rental of this magnificent building. Uh, we thought it was a nice touch that the building <laughs> the building had a covered walkway where we could get our horses out of the sun when we went into the, into the bank to conduct our business. Now, we each contributed $1,000, so our beginning capital was $10,000. Let's just say that each of us goes into the bank a year later to withdraw our $1,000, but none of us knew the others were going to do that as well. <laughs> the bank manager we hired would tell each of us that he could not honor any of our individual requests because he simply did not have the money on hand. He would explain that, like any other bank, he had made loans to others who needed the money, let's say, to make a down payment on a house they wanted to buy. We would insist that he called these individuals that he had loaned the money to and ask them to return the money he had loaned them. The manager would say that each of these individuals would say that they no longer had the money because they had given it to someone else and that they, in turn, didn't have it any longer either. <laughs> this is called a bank run when a bank does not have the money on hand to pay all of its depositors. You see, the banks do make loans from their depositors' money placed in a savings account. If Tucson's story got out to others in America, that a local bank was denying their depositors their money, many others would race to their bank to withdraw their money because they thought their bank could also be insolvent as well. And when they did, they would discover that their bank also had made loans from their deposits and didn't have the money any longer either. And this would start a nationwide bank run. And the international bankers would then declare that all of these local banks were being run by a bunch of crooks. And what this nation needed would be, guess what, America?
<laughs> Central Bank called the Federal Reserve. As I've said, bank runs have happened at least three times in America's past after the Civil War, 1873, 1893, and 1907. This is a photograph taken during the bank run of 1907, when all of these depositors came to the Knickerbocker Bank in New York City demanding their money, and the bank had admitted that they no longer could honor their requests. And when J.P. Morgan, the nation's leading banker at the time, suggested that a central bank was needed, the American people allowed the international bankers to create the Federal Reserve Banking System in 1913. And the fact that it was international banker J.P. Morgan who had started the rumor, the rumor that the Knickerbocker Bank was insolvent when he knew it wasn't, was quickly buried in the turmoil created during the bank run of 1907. So in 1913, the international bankers got what they had wanted, a privately owned bank that had the power to print paper money out of nothing, loan it to the government at interest. Now that is as simple and is as brief as I can make it. But I'm hoping that you can see 1376 to 1913, the need of the European central bankers to create a permanent central bank in America. This is all once again amply documented in my book entitled The Unseen Hand. Now let's ask the pertinent question. What type of success has the Federal Reserve System had? Has the United States had, quote, orderly economic growth and a stable dollar since 1913, end quote. And the answer has to be, uh, no, 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 no. America has not had those benefits. So then the second question becomes, why is the Federal Reserve System still operating? And the answer has to be, because it was not intended to give us orderly economic growth and a stable dollar. In other words, it was intended to give us business cycles of ups and downs and a dollar depreciating in value. There were very few in Congress who spoke out in opposition to the creation of the Federal Reserve, but one was Congressman Charles Lindbergh, the father of the famous aviator by the same name. He expressed his concerns about this act with these strong words. This act establishes the most gigantic trust on earth. When the president signs this act, the invisible government, the invisible government by the money power, notice he called it the money power, will be legitimized. The new law will create inflation whenever the trusts want inflation. From now on, depressions will be scientifically created. Let me repeat this because of the significance of what he was just saying. From now on, depressions will be scientifically created. And to show that the congressman's predictions were correct, America suffered through two great 
depressions shortly after the Federal Reserve was created. The first was in 1920, and the second was in 1929. I would like to briefly discuss these two depressions, but first let me make a statement. Just to save, save time with some lengthy definitions of both economic words, let me just say this. A depression is far more severe than a recession, and both of these depressions were severe. So let's start with the depression of 1920. This is the fall 2009 edition of a magazine called the Intercollegiate Review, called a Journal of Scholarship and Opinion. And this is an article starting on page 22, entitled Warren G. Harding and the Forgotten Depression of 1920. I would like to quote several brief paragraphs from this article because there is an important lesson contained therein. The economic situation in 1920 was grim. By that year, unemployment had jumped from 4% to nearly 12%. The gross national product had declined 17%. But in November of that year, Warren G. Harding was elected president of the United States. The article continued. In his 1920 speech, accepting the Republican presidential nomination, Harding declared, We shall strike at government borrowing, which enlarged the evil. And we will attack the very high cost of government with every energy. We promise to attend to the halting of waste and extravagance. It will be an example to stimulate thrift and economy in private life. President Harding cut the government's budget nearly in half between 1920 and 1922. Tax rates were slashed for all income groups. The national debt was reduced by one-third. And by the late summer of 19. 21, just a few months after he was elected, signs of recovery were already visible. The following year, unemployment was back down to 6.7% and was only 2.4% by 1923. However, not all of the news was good. The Depression of 1920 bankrupted 5,400 banks. And we've got to ask the question, who bought all of the bankrupt banks at a reduced price? Could it be those who planned the crisis? One of the little known stories of the 1920 depression was the fact that one of the targets of the planners was the automobile maker Henry Ford. Despite the inflation of the 1920s, Ford ordered a price cut for his automobiles. But demand was still insufficient, and a number of Ford plants had to be shut down. Rumor had it that a huge loan was being negotiated. <laughs> but Ford, who thought the bankers were nothing short of vultures, was determined not to fall into their hands. Bankers lined up to offer their help in return for his surrender of independence. 
when large corporations borrow money from the big bankers, the bankers make certain that their officers sit on the board of directors of the borrowing company. They want to make certain the loan is not squandered by the unwise decisions of the company's officers. And it is the board of directors, meaning the bankers, who run the business. This is what Mr. Ford feared. Now back to the discussion of Mr. Ford. The game was clear to him. One representative of a Morgan-controlled bank came forward with the plan to save Ford. Ford saved his company by turning to his dealers, to whom he now shipped his cars in spite of the slowness of the market. Ford sent his cars to the dealers without cost to the dealer. Until they sold the car, then they would have to pay for it. Demand grew, and the plates, the plants were reopened. Ford had outsmarted the bankers who had planned the depression, in part to force him into borrowing money to keep his Ford Motor Company in business. He didn't succumb to the pressure, and he saved his business. <laughs> well done, Henry Ford. Let me now return to the Depression of 1920. Notice this. These actions taken by President Harding solved solved the Depression in about a year, maybe two. But as of July 2011, America is in a recession, not as severe as a Depression. And President Barack Obama is doing exactly the opposite of what President Harding did. And there's no relief, no relief of the recession. In nearly two and a half years, the end of the recession even isn't foreseeable in the near future. One can only wonder why President Obama is not following the successful record of President Harding. And the answer is obvious. Barack Obama does not want to end the recession. And the reason Barack Obama does not want to end the recession is because the Federal Reserve does not want him to. This recession is all about debauching the currency for the reasons detailed by John Maynard Keynes. Now let me proceed with a brief discussion of the crash of 1929, where billions were lost in a new stock market crash. When I was researching my book in the mid-1980s, mid-1980s, I'm not quite that old yet, uh, mid-1980s, I looked for explanations as to what might have caused the crash of 1929. I found this book, amongst others, entitled The Great Crash 1929 by John Kenneth Galbraith, and I read it. Uh, Mr. Galbraith was described as a Keynesian, meaning Mr. Keynes was his hero, and that he, meaning Galbraith, was a leading proponent of 20th century political liberalism. He served in the administrations of President Franklin Roosevelt, Harry Truman, John Kennedy, and Lyndon Johnson, all of whom were also leading proponents of 20th century political liberalism.
And these are his conclusions about the cause of the great crash of 1929 from pages 4, 32, and 172. No, <laughs> I shouldn't be laughing. This is one of our great economists saying this, so this obviously must be a truth. No one was responsible for the great crash. There was none who caused it. Although I got to give him credit, he does admit this. The Federal Reserve Board was a body of startling incompetence. So no one, no one caused it, but whatever caused it, the Federal Reserve Board was incompetent to prevent it and then stop it. But Galbraith did agree with his hero, John Maynard Keynes, who wrote this in a quotation I read earlier. And while the process impoverishes many, it actually enriches some. In other words, some people benefit from crashes. This is how Mr. Galbraith put it. The man with the smart money who was safely out of the market when the first crash came, meaning the beginning of the crash, naturally went in to buy or to pick up bargains. In other words, those with the smart money who got out of the stock market before, before the crash started went back in and bought bargains, meaning stocks, at a much lower price. Of course, naturally. When I was in my economics courses, I asked my professors who told us all about the selling of these stocks in the crash in 1929, just who was it who was doing all the buying? We spent time discussing the sellers of the stock, but we never discussed who was doing all of the buying. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to know that for every stock sold, someone bought it. Both of the two economists, Keynes and Galbraith, told us that the people with the smart money, those who got out of the market before the crash happened, went in and naturally bought every stock sold. Maybe, just maybe, that was why the Federal Reserve Board was startlingly incompetent. It was to allow the people with the smart money to come back in and buy stocks at a dramatically lower price. After the crash in 1929, the ownership of the banking system had changed. About 16,000 banks, or 52% of the total, went out of business. Today, 100 out of 14,100 banks control 50% of the nation's banking assets. 14 big banks have 25% of the deposits. Could it be that certain large banks somehow had extra cash set aside so that after the crash was over, they could purchase bank, bank assets at a reduced price? And that was an additional reason that the Reserve Board was startlingly incompetent. The depositors in all of these old banks were impoverished, but someone else was enriched.
You know something? I believe Mr. Galbraith did know what caused the crash and that he intentionally lied. Don't forget, he was a, quote, a proponent of 20th century political liberalism. Just what would you expect him to say? The stock market crash was planned by the Federal Reserve? I somehow don't think he would say that. But I want to make it clear. I found the evidence that the Federal Reserve did plan both of these depressions, and I provided that evidence in far more detail in my book. And I would like to now briefly discuss the evidence that the Depression of 1929 was the result of the planning by the Reserve Board. First of all, I'm going to round the figures I will present just to make it a little easier to understand. It only started after the Depression of 1920. The Federal Reserve had $34 billion of money in circulation in June of 1920, and they decreased it to $32 billion in June of 1921, and they started increasing it to $33 billion in June of 1922, to $36 billion in 1923, to $38 billion in 1924, to $42 billion in 1925, to $43 billion in 1926, to $45 billion in 1927, and then in a high, to a high rather, of $46 billion in June of 1928. The Federal Reserve then leveled it off to the same $46 billion in June of 1929. They had increased the money supply by 44% from June of 1921 to June of 1929. Now, this is how the media contributed to the Depression of 1929. They were convincing the public to invest in the stock market where you could, you could become as rich as John D. Rockefeller, perhaps this nation's wealthiest businessman. This was what they were doing with the extra money that they had increased the money supply by. So you heard that you buy stocks with the assistance of a stockbroker, so you call and make an appointment. You tell him that you have $100 that you want to invest in purchasing stock, and you want to buy one share of Epperson Popsicle Stick Makers. Now, you tell the broker that I recommend, <laughs> recommended this company because it was an Epperson who invented the Popsicle. And by the way, that story is true. And you want to share in the good fortunes of the Epperson family. The stockbroker then explains that stock market, tycoon, stock market tycoons such as yourself have to get familiar with the language. Tycoons always refer to a stock by the first two words of the name. So you call your stock Epperson Pops. He goes on to explain how the system works. You invest $100 in Epperson Popsicle, and if the stock goes up just 10% to $110, you'll make a 10% profit. And you start thinking how easy this is. And then you, you reassure yourself by thinking that this must be how John D. Rockefeller made his fortune by starting small. Then the stockbroker tells you that the banks are allowing tycoons such as yourself to borrow money to buy stocks. 
It is called buying on margin. He then explains what that means. You will still invest your $100, but since the margin is 10%, you can borrow $900 and invest a total of $1,000 to buy 10 shares at $100 apiece. Then if your shares go up 10% to a total of $1,100, you'll make a $100 profit, which means you will double your original investment. You can double your money with just a small 10% increase in the price of your stock. Now you can start to see just how you can really become as rich as John D. Rockefeller. So you agree and purchase 10 shares for a total of $1,000. And as I said, this is what the Federal Reserve was doing with all of the new money they were creating. It was being loaned out to stock market tycoons. Uh, then the stockbroker then says, uh, there's one more thing we need to understand. Hold on. The banks are loaning you this money on what they call a 24-hour broker call loan, which means that they can call me and ask me to call the loan, and you will have 24 hours to sell your stock and pay off the loan. But all you could think about is the prospect of becoming as rich John D. Rockefeller, and with the rising stock market, what's the danger? You certainly can sell your stock in 24 hours and pay off the loan. So you you leave the broker's office, and now you can soon buy, or now you can soon buy that yacht you've always wanted. And as time passes, the stock market is climbing, and everybody's happy until October. The 24th, 1929, when the Federal Reserve Board told the banks to call all of their 24-hour broker call loans, and stockbrokers all over the country started selling the shares of all of their tycoons, and all of the tycoons would get a call asking them to come in to the office to talk about this. But notice that all of the tycoons had to make the same visit, which means that everyone is trying to sell their stocks at the same time. And when that happened, the stock market started dropping rapidly. So let's now see what happened when your broker sold your 10 shares of Epperson Popsicle. Now, let's just say that he was able to find a buyer for, say, $400. So he would sell your stocks for 400 and he would then give you a check for that amount so you could pay off the loan of $900. Uh, but, uh, but, but notice this. Uh, you owe the bank a total of 900 and now you have only $400, which means you still owe $500. The stockbroker would then say, how are you going to come up with the additional $500? And you would say, gee, this is all you could get for my 10 shares. I'm really sorry, but the stock market's down, and I understand that's the best you could do. The stockbroker will express his deep concern and then repeat his question. How are you going to come up with the additional $500? You will say that you you did not cause the drop in the stock market and that you were diligent in coming in within the 24-hour period just as soon as you got your phone call. 
And once again, the stockbroker would explain the bank loaned you $900, and they will expect $900 when he, the broker, tenders it to the bank as full payment of the loan. And you respond, yes, I'm aware of that, but that's all I got for my stocks, and I don't have any assets that I can sell to pay the $500. And the broker says, you owe $900. When will you return with the money? This is how the Federal Reserve created the 1929 crash. Let me show you the stock market index for these years. In 1929, the index was $138. And in 1921, after the depression of 1920 started, it was $66. In 1922, it was $469. And in 1932, it was $58. When I worked in Oakland, California, my boss lived through the crash of 29, and he said that hotel rooms were rented by the hour. You could rent one on the 10th floor, for four hours and decide you wanted to get to the ground rather quickly by jumping out the window. And he said it was common to see tycoons who couldn't make the broker call lying uh, laying on the sidewalk covered with a white sheet as he walked to his office each morning. In other words, the tycoons could not meet their broker call and they had no other assets to pay off the loan, so they took a short walk to the ground floor from the 10th floor, and they would leave their family with the problems of handling the debt. But as both John Maynard Keynes and John Kenneth Galbraith have told us, not all tycoons took the short walk. Some of them got out of the market in 1928. One such tycoon who did exactly that was Joseph P. Kennedy, the father of President John Kennedy and brothers, his brothers, Bobby and Teddy. Joseph Kennedy got out by selling all of his stock in the winter of 1928 and 29, about a year before the stock market crash. Now, please don't jump to conclusions that somehow Joseph P. Kennedy got advanced information about the coming stock market crash in 29. Of course not. He was out early because he was a shrewd tycoon. And author Gary Allen said this about what he did with his money. The profits he took from the sale of his holdings were not reinvested, but were kept in cash. And so after the crash reached the low in prices, the father brought his cash back to the market and started buying at a low price. Yes, indeed. While the process impoverishes many, it actually enriches some. Let me now add the comments made by Congressman Lewis McFadden, Chairman of the House Committee on Banking from 1920 to 1931, meeting the times of both of these depressions. These are his comments made after the crash of 1929. We have in this country one of the most corrupt institutions the world has ever seen. I refer to the Federal Reserve Board of the Federal Reserve Banks. When the Federal Reserve Act was passed, 
the people of these United States did not perceive that a world system, a world system was being set up. A super state controlled by the international bankers. Acting together to enslave the world for their own pleasure. The Fed has usurped the government. It controls everything here and it controls all of our foreign relations. It makes and breaks government, governments, pearl, at will. I charge them with the crime of having treasonably conspired and acting against the peace and security of the United States and with having conspired, conspired to destroy constitutional government. Some people think the Federal Reserve Banks are United States institutions. They are not. They are private credit monopolies which prey upon the people of the United States for the benefit of themselves and their foreign customers. The Federal Reserve Banks are the agents of the foreign central banks. He further amplified his remarks with this comment that the cause of the depression was not an accident. It was a carefully contrived occurrence. The international bankers sought to bring about a condition of despair here so that they might emerge as the rulers of us all. And during that speech on May the 23rd, 1933, the congressman brought impeachment charges against the Federal Reserve Board with this comment. I charge them with having taken $80 billion from the United States government in the year 1928. The Federal Reserve Board was not impeached, but history, to my knowledge, has never answered the question as to why they were not. And Congress has ignored these and other warnings for well over 200 years, all to the detriment of the American people. This last statement of the congressman was confirmed by Dr. Carol Quigley in his book entitled Tragedy and Hope, published in 1966. By the way, Dr. Quigley was Bill Clinton's professor at Georgetown University from 1964 to 1968. And we know that Quigley's book was required reading for Quigley's courses. We know that Mr. Clinton praised Dr. Quigley during a live, nationally televised speech he gave on the night of July 16, 1992. That means that what Quigley believed in, Clinton believes in. Now, this is what Bill Clinton read in Quigley's book. The powers of financial capitalism had another far-reaching aim. Nothing less than to create a world system of financial control in private hands. Able to dominate the political system of each country and the economy of the world as a whole. This system was to be controlled by the central banks of the world acting in concert by secret agreements arrived at in frequent private meetings and conferences. And this confirms why the American people do not know 
much about the Federal Reserve. It is because they operate in secrecy because they're not controlled by the U.S. government. They're controlled by the central banks of the world acting in concert. The Federal Reserve stands convicted by the evidence. But it is important at this point to discuss other things that Dr. Quigley taught Bill Clinton. He wrote that the financial element was controlled by a much larger and more powerful group that he called an international Anglophile network. The word Anglophile means that this network is primarily English. This is what he wrote on page 950 of his book. There does exist and has existed for a generation an international Anglophile network. So that means that the banks are controlled by an international network out to control the world through the central banks. And that this network controls the elections for the presidency in the United States. This is what Quigley wrote on page 73. The network's expected to control both political parties equally. Some are then intended to contribute to both in order to conceal their own influence and allow the electorate to believe they were exercising their own free choice. Notice what Dr. Quigley thinks of the American voter. He believes that we're too stupid to see how they control both candidates for president equally. That means that no matter who we elect, that candidate was a supporter of this international network. And one of the ways this network controls the two political parties is through an organization known as the Council on Foreign Relations created by the network in 1921. Dr. Krieger reported on page 950, this organization has played a very significant role in the history of the United States. And to show us that Bill Clinton learned his lessons well from Dr. Quigley, Bill Clinton joined the Council on Foreign Relations in 1988. You might want to keep all of that in mind the next time you cast your vote in a presidential election. Now let's go back to the subject directly. There are those in power who do not even agree that the Federal Reserve controls the money supply. In 1974, President Jimmy Carter said, it is a myth that government itself can stop inflation. Uh, uh, excuse me, Jimmy baby, <laughs> but you're wrong. Uh, the government itself, meaning the Congress, created the Federal Reserve. The Congress itself can revoke it. That means the government can stop inflation. But there's a reason that Jimmy doesn't believe the government causes inflation. He appointed Alfred E. Kahn as an advisor on inflation, and this is what Mr. Kahn's view on what caused it. The desire of each group with power to improve its economic situation is, after all, what the problem of inflation is. The living standard of Americans must decline if inflation is to be controlled. Now, the only thing that Kahn didn't say 
was that he would urge the Federal Reserve to continue its vision of debauching the currency to reduce America's standard of living. There are many historians who think that President Carter was the worst president the United States has ever had, and I count myself as one of them. And this cartoon amply illustrates the point. The lady tells the seated president at the Who's the Worst President Ever contest television show. The lady tells the president, uh, uh, Mr. Carter, there's been a mistake. Uh, when we when we asked you onto the show, uh, we didn't mean as a we didn't mean as a judge. But we have had warnings from the past not to create a Federal Reserve system. As I've already mentioned, the Bible in Proverbs 22, verse 7 says this, the borrower is servant to the lender. Of course, those words do not apply to us as Americans. They only apply to the house of Israel written many, many centuries ago. Reginald McKenna, a past chairman of the board of Midlands Bank of England, warned us with these words around 1900. I'm afraid that the ordinary citizen will not like to be told that the banks can and do create and destroy money. And they who control the credit of a nation direct the policy of governments and hold in the hollow of their hands the destiny of the people. President Thomas Jefferson warned us as well. I sincerely believe that banking establishments are more dangerous than standing armies and that the principle of spending money to be paid by posterity, which means, of course, the future, is but swindling futurity, and once again, the future, on a large scale. It is incumbent on every generation to pay its own debts as it goes, a principle which, if acted upon, would save one half of the wars of the world. Now, this is an extremely important quotation. President Jefferson was telling us that bankers create wars which are very costly and that they can get government to borrow the money from the bankers to finance them. And then the bankers can loan the money to the government at interest which means they can create money out of nothing and make a profit on the money that they've created. President Abraham Lincoln also warned us about what he called the money power. The money power preys upon a nation in times of peace and conspires against it in times of adversity. The money power will endeavor to work upon the people until the wealth is aggregated in a few hands, and the republic is destroyed. Sir Josiah Stamp, a past president of the Bank of England, said this, If you want to remain the slaves of the people and to pay the costs of your own slavery, let them continue to create money and control the nation's credit. President James Garfield was quoted as saying, Whoever controls the volume of money in any country is absolute master 
of all industry and commerce. And to bring it a little closer to the present, I would like to quote President Franklin Roosevelt. The real truth is that a financial element has owned the government ever since President Andrew Jackson, meaning this financial element has owned the government since around 1830. But to show you that all of these warnings are wrong, some do not agree. Like this gentleman, William Gladstone, the Chancellor of the Exchequer in England, the Controller of England's Treasury, who said this. The hinge of the whole situation was this. The government itself was not to be a power in matters of finance, but was to leave the money power supreme and unquestioned. So this is a battle. Who is going to handle the money supply, the government or the bankers? A similar threat was voiced by Alexander Hamilton, America's first secretary of the Treasury. He offered an opinion as to who we should trust with the money power. No society could succeed which did not unite the interest and credit of rich individuals with those of the state. All communities divide themselves into the few and the many. The first are rich and well-born. The other are the mass of the people. The people are turbulent and changing. They seldom judge or determine right. <laughs> so, people of America, we're not well-born, and therefore we must trust the rich because they can best administer the quantity of money through a central bank. Now, let me bring this all together with the discussion of how this financial element creates money out of nothing. Now, I would like to bring the thoughts of Dr. Quigley back once again for a very important observation. We have asked the question as to who is to control the money supply, the bankers or the government. Dr. Quigley spoke directly to that issue on page 53 of his book entitled Tragedy and Hope. This is what he wrote. The influence of financial capitalism and the international bankers was based upon the assumption that the politicians were too weak and too subject to temporary popular pressures to be trusted with control of the money. Accordingly, the soundness of money must be protected by allowing the bankers to control the supply of money. Now, what follows is a very devastating bit of information. Dr. Quigley continued, To do this, meaning allow the bankers to control the money supply, it was necessary to conceal or even to mislead both governments and people about the nature of money. Let me repeat those last few words. It was necessary to conceal or even to mislead both governments and people 
about the nature of money. You might remember that I drew this conclusion near the beginning of this presentation after we defined the word inflation. There it is. I said one of these definitions is in error because someone is not telling the truth. Dr. Quigley just taught us that it is the bankers who are lying to us about money. In other words, we are not to be trusted with the truth, as I've detailed it in this presentation. Let me conclude this thought with this one sentence. We are being lied to by the international bankers who are lying to conceal their crimes against us. And I've tried to document that fact for all to see. This will be a brief, simplified illustration, hopefully just to keep it easy to understand. There are three principles in this illustration, the President of the United States, the Federal Reserve, and the Treasury Department. The process starts when the President requests that each of the departments of the government submit their budget for the next fiscal year. And let's just say that it totals in round figures $4 trillion. He then asks the Internal Revenue Service to submit an estimate of the amount of taxes to be collected during the next fiscal year, and let's say that totals $3 trillion. That means there will be a deficit of $1 trillion. Now, let's just assume the president doesn't know what to do. He goes to one of his advisors and tells him to, who, who advises him, the advisor advises him to call the Federal Reserve and they will get the money that he needs to balance the budget. So the president calls the Federal Reserve and asks them for $1 trillion. The Federal Reserve responds that they will be happy to get him the money. The president authorizes the process. The Federal Reserve then calls the Treasury Department and asks them to print up $1 trillion in small denomination bills. Notice here that this money is being created out of nothing. The bank is not loaning part of their assets. They're creating $1 trillion of new money. The Treasury then calls the Federal Reserve when the money is ready. The Federal Reserve then calls the President and tells him the money is ready. The president then tells them to deliver it, and they will deposit it into the federal government's account in the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve then says they want some evidence of the transfer of the money since they are loaning the money to the government. And the president says, wait a minute, what's this about loaning? Uh, you're the Federal Reserve, and I'm the federal government, and you're at the Federal Reserve meeting, you're a branch of the government. I'm the president, and I need $1 trillion to balance the budget, and I'm told you can arrange for me to get that amount. And so the Federal Reserve responds by saying, you're slightly misinformed there, Mr. President. The name Federal Reserve is not our entire name. We are called the Federal Reserve Bank. And even though we have the name Federal in our name, we're not a part of the federal government. We are a privately owned bank, and just like any bank, we are in the loaning business, and that we will need the government to pay the loan back with an annual rate of interest. 
and we will loan you that money, let's say in this example, for 10% interest per year. And the reason we need to charge interest is because we're a bank, and just like any bank, we have bills to pay. The president responds, and I, I guess this is the way it's done, so what do I tell the Treasury Department? And the Federal Reserve responds, tell them to print up $1 trillion worth of bonds at an annual rate of 10%. So the president calls the Treasury Department and asks them to print up bonds at a 10% annual interest rate. The Treasury Department calls the president when the bonds are ready. And the president then calls the Federal Reserve and tells them the bonds are ready. The Federal Reserve tells the president to have the bonds delivered, and in exchange, they will deliver the money to him. And the next day, the trucks with their cargoes pass on the highway, and when they get to their destination, they make the delivery, and everybody's happy. The government now has the money to pay all of their government bills, and the Federal Reserve now has a guarantee that the federal government will pay the interest on the bonds so that they can pay their bills. Now, let me point out in my example, the amount of money borrowed was $1 trillion, and the amount of interest to be paid is $100 billion, meaning an interest rate of 10%. And, uh, oh, yes, I, I, I failed to mention that bonds are issued for a certain period of years, which means that the government will pay $100 billion a year for, let's say, 20 years. That means the total interest paid will be $2 trillion during the 20-year term. Now, I've got to explain that paying interest on bonds is not like paying interest on a mortgage. Let's <laughs> just say that you borrowed $10,000 to buy my house. Uh, please do not think that all of us authors get rich by selling our books. Uh, I'm certainly living <laughs> living proof of that. But let's just say that the bank loans you the $10,000 and you agree to pay it off with a payment of $100 a month. Some of the money goes to reduce the amount you have to pay back, called the principal, and the rest goes for interest. That means that for each $100 payment you make, it reduces the amount of interest you pay each month and increases the amount applied to the principal. And notice this. Under our example, the government pays the same interest each year, and there's no reduction tax payment. The government pays $100 billion each year for 20 years for a total of $2 trillion. And then at the end of the 20 years, the government will be asked to return the $1 trillion to the Federal Reserve. That means that the total cost of funding this $1 trillion deficit will be $2 trillion paid in interest plus the $1 trillion paid at the end of the 20 years for a total of $3 trillion. So in this example, the Federal Reserve makes a $2 trillion profit for loaning $1 trillion to the government, plus they get to use the $100 trillion that they created out of nothing again in another later loan to the government. Hey, Americans, that's not too shabby. Oh, yes, there's one more thing. Notice that when our president and our congressman 
and our senators talk about funding a deficit, they always fail to mention the amount of interest it will cost us taxpayers each year to borrow from the Federal Reserve. However, I'm just sure that's one little detail that they just forget about when they discuss this process. Uh, but uh, I, 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 I forgot one little insignificant detail. Now I do not know for certain, but if the federal government loaned the federal, if the Federal Reserve, if the Federal Reserve loaned the federal government one trillion dollars in cash, that the government will deposit in the Federal Reserve Bank. I don't know that, but I do know this: the Federal Reserve has to pay the Treasury Department for the printing of any money. Marilyn Bosavant discussed this in her February 8, 2009 column in Parade Magazine. She was asked, what does it cost to print U.S. currency? And her answer was, a paper note costs 6.2 cents to print. Now, let me explain what she just said. It costs 6.2 cents to print a $100 bill. The Federal Reserve loans the government the $100 bill at its face value, and it costs them 6.2 cents to print it. That is a profit of approximately $99.94 to loan the U.S. government $100. Hey, Americans, that's, once again, not too shabby. So let me summarize this whole subject of funding the national debt. When the U.S. government borrows the money from the Federal Reserve, it causes debt, meaning we have to pay the Federal Reserve back just like a private citizen does when they borrow money from a bank. It causes inflation when the Federal Reserve puts this new money into circulation. <clears throat> Excuse me. And it costs us in interest payments just like anyone has to pay when they borrow money. Now, that doesn't sound like much of a bargain to me. This transaction causes debt, inflation, and interest payments. But there are at least three other ways to fund a deficit budget. The second way would be to borrow from the American people. This was one of the ways that President Franklin Roosevelt funded World War II. Hollywood actors and actresses like Joan Crawford went on nation, national bond drives, encouraging the American people to loan money to the government as a way to pay a part of the costs of the war. This method does cause debt, <coughs> excuse me, because the taxpayers have to pay the money back. It does not cause inflation because there's no increase in the amount of money in circulation. But it causes interest payments that the taxpayers have to pay the American people who loan the money to the government. The third way would be for the government to put the printing plates that print paper money on the printers and then just print the money. This method does not cause debt since nothing has been borrowed but it does cause inflation because it increases the money supply. But it does save the taxpayers' interest payments. And the fourth way would be to tax the people, declaring that if you want the services, you've got to pay for them. This method does not cause debt because nothing's borrowed. It does not cause inflation because it is not an increase in the money supply. And it does not cause interest payments because nothing's borrowed. So this is the table showing the four methods that are available to the U.S. government when it has a deficit budget. 
Now, which one is the worst way, as far as the taxpayers are concerned, to fund the deficit? Of course, it's number one, borrowing from the Federal Reserve. Notice once again, the government consistently chooses method number one, the worst possible way to fund a deficit, because it causes debt, inflation, and interest payments, yet our government consistently chooses this method. Now, which is the best way to fund a deficit budget as far as the taxpayers are concerned? It is, of course, method number four, because it does not cause debt, inflation, nor interest. But the government never chooses that method because tax increases are not popular. It might be of interest to provide you with the two presidents who were faced with spending problems and who reverted to printing money without borrowing it. One was President Abraham Lincoln, as we've discussed already, who during the Civil War had little constitutional taxing power to pay for the costs of that war. He issued a total of $450 million of what were called greenbacks, but they were not borrowed, they were just issued. In other words, he tried method number three. This caused inflation, but it did not cause debt nor interest payments. In 1983, Congressman Wright Patman, the chairman of the House Banking Committee, asked the tech Secretary of the Treasury to determine how much money was saved in interest payments by his issuing the greenback. The Secretary of the Treasury responded, if the money had been borrowed for 100 years from 1863 to 1962 to reduce the amount of annual payments, the amount of interest paid would have exceeded $49 billion. Lincoln printed $450 million in greenbacks, and the interest he saved was 49 billion dollars. Thank you, Mr. President. The other president who issued money that was not borrowed but was just printed was John Kennedy, who in 1963 issued 43 billion dollars of money not borrowed from the Federal Reserve. This is the Ford Museum in Dearborn, Michigan. When I was asked to speak in Dearborn several years ago, my host took me to the Ford Museum for the day, and I was truly fascinated by the items displayed there. Henry Ford, the car manufacturer, was a major collector of the past. One of those items on display is the rocking chair that was President Lincoln, that President Lincoln was seated in when he was assassinated by John Wilkes Booth. Those dark maroon areas on the back of the chair are the dried blood stains from the assassination. Just a few feet from this display is another one, this time the limousine that President John Kennedy was seated in when he was assassinated in 1963. Two presidents issued money that was not borrowed. Two presidents were assassinated. Now, this is an interesting question. Is there a lesson for future presidents of the United States? I will let you answer that 
question. Let me bring you this part of this presentation to a close by repeating the warning given to America by President Thomas Jefferson. It is incumbent on every generation to, to pay its own debts as it goes, a principle which, if acted upon, would save one half of the wars of the world. Let me repeat this because there is an extremely important truth contained therein. It is incumbent on every generation pay its own debts as it goes, a principle which, if acted upon, would save one half of the wars of the world. I'm hoping that you grasp the enormous truth in what he just said. He was saying that if you want your government involved in perpetual wars, then allow them to borrow money from a central bank like the Federal Reserve. Now, let me ask the next question. Has it been our history to be involved in wars all over the world since the creation of the Federal Reserve in 1913? Yes, World War One. we got involved in 1917. Yes, World War Two started in 1941, and it lasted approximately four years. Yes, Korea started in 1950, and lasted approximately three years. Yes, Vietnam planned by our government. The war in Vietnam was planned by our government in at least 1945, but started 19 years later in 1964 and ended about 11 years later. May I interrupt this discussion at this point because I would like to recommend that you consider watching my four-hour DVD on the subject of the war in Vietnam. I've entitled it Vietnam, America's Betrayal and Treason. I believe it is the best explanation ever offered by anyone about the war and why our government planned it in at least 1945. You can watch it on YouTube on the Internet. Well, let's go back to our study of wars. Yes, Afghanistan started in 2001, still being fought today. Yes, Iraq started in 2003, and of course it's still being fought. Yes, wars are costly, and one of the ways America funds them is through debt, inflation, and interest. And the owners of the Federal Reserve really enjoy loaning the money to fund them at interest. Now, let me explain that while the Federal Reserve Bank has the name federal in it, it's not owned by the government. Let me offer you two ways to prove that. The Federal Reserve has offices in 12 major cities, Boston, New York City, Philadelphia, Cleveland, Richmond, Virginia, Atlanta, Chicago, St. Louis, Minneapolis, Kansas City, Dallas, and San Francisco. I've been told that many public libraries have phone books from various cities around the United States. If your city has such a library, may I suggest that you visit it and look up the phone number for the Federal Reserve 
in that city. The first place to look is in the blue pages where the city, county, state, and federal agencies and departments are listed. You will find phone numbers in alphabetical order for the federal government, such as the Agricultural Department, the Army Department, the Defense Department, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, and then the department skip past where the Federal Reserve phone listing should be to the Food and Drug Administration. <laughs> that obviously means that the Federal Reserve does not have telephones. But then, because you think that the Federal Reserve must have telephones, in exasperation, you flip to the white pages where the business phones are listed. And there you'll find it between the Federal Pest Control and the Federal Sign Company, both of which are privately owned businesses listed, of course, in the white pages. The Federal Reserve does have telephones. They're just not listed in the blue government pages in the phone directory. In other words, the bank is not federal. It's privately owned, just like any privately owned business with the word federal in its name. Now, this is another way you can know that the Federal Reserve is not federally owned. This is a photocopy of an advertisement that appeared in the July 16, 1979 Computer World magazine. It's an ad soliciting applications for, from programmers for jobs in the San Francisco branch of the Federal Reserve System. The first paragraph says, the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco. Some people still think we're a branch of the government. We're not. <laughs> we're the bank's bank. However, there's one minor insignificant difference between these three privately owned companies with the name Federal in their name. Yeah, you see, the Federal Reserve does not pay income taxes. Uh, but, but, but please don't tell that to the owners of the Federal Pest Control and the Federal Sign Company because they do. And if they knew that the privately owned Federal Reserve paid no taxes, they might ask for the same waiver. You see, if the Federal Reserve paid income taxes, they would have to file an income tax form and someone, someone maybe, someone inside maybe, inside the IRS might just leak out how much of a profit they made. And the American people might get mad and put a stop to this. This is how Dr. Martin Larson in his book entitled The Federal Reserve and Our Manipulated Dollar added to our knowledge that this agency is not federal. The Federal Reserve is a private organization on which they receive tax-free dividends. It must pay postage, just like any private corporation. Its employees are not on civil service, and its physical property held under private deeds is subject to local taxation. So if the federal government does not own the Federal Reserve, then who does? And the answer is very simple. We, the people, cannot find out. All we know is that the Federal Reserve has never been audited and lists of its owners have never been released by the Federal Reserve nor provided by any governmental agency. Congressman Wright Patman introduced a bill which would have authorized a full and independent audit of the system by the Government Accounting Office. He reported 
I am frankly amazed by the massive lobbying campaign now underway to prevent enactment of this measure. This is further proof that a thorough and independent audit is an absolute necessity in the public interest. However, the bill was defeated. I would be remiss if I didn't tell you one little story about the tenacity of Congressman Patman. The story is told that when he was sitting as chairman of the House Banking Committee in the early 1970s, the committee was questioning Arthur Burns, the chairman of the Federal Reserve. The congressman asked Mr. Burns this question. <laughs> Can you give me any reason why you should <laughs> why you should not be in the penitentiary? <laughs> well done, Congressman Patman. Congressman Ron Paul of Texas has been trying for years to get the Congress to audit the Federal Reserve so we can know who owns it and how much profit they make. But Congress has either voted down or ignored all attempts to do so. Dr. Carl Quigley gave us several possible clues as to who might own it when he wrote this on page 52 of his book entitled Tragedy and Hope, published in 1966. These banking families include Baring, Lazard, Erlanger, Warburg, Schroeder, Eggman, the Spayers, Mirabad, Malay, Fold, and above all, Rothschild and Morgan. Of course, many historians have written about the last two family names, but I would dare say the others are unknown to the American people. It is not known officially that any of these banking families own the Federal Reserve or even a part of it, but some of them might have an interest. Dr. Quigley continued on page 52, these families were almost equally devoted to secrecy and the secret use of financial influence in political life. These bankers came to be called international bankers. Let me bring this a little more into focus by this quotation from Thomas Jefferson. I sincerely believe that banking establishments are more dangerous to our liberties than standing armies. Already they have raised up a money aristocracy that has set the government at defiance. The issuing power should be taken from the banks and restored to the government to whom it belongs. However, all of these warnings that we've discussed have gone unheeded and the Federal Reserve System caused the depressions of 1920 and 1929. They accomplished this by increasing and then decreasing the quantity of money in circulation so that both depressions were a huge re distribution of wealth from the poor and middle class to the extremely rich. So why hasn't the federal government reined in the powers of the federal agency? They created it with an act of Congress in 1913. It is true that the President of the United States nominates the next Federal Reserve Chairman and then the Senate votes to confirm the nomination. But other than this, the federal government 
has no control over its activities. And whereas the Senate has denied confirmation to certain Supreme Court nominees of various presidents, they've never, never, never refused a confirmation of the next Federal Reserve Chairman. In a primer on money, the Subcommittee on Domestic Finance of the Committee of Banking and Currency House Representatives of 1964 wrote this. Although the Federal Reserve is a creature of Congress, the Federal Reserve is in practice independent of that body in its policymaking. The Federal Reserve neither requires nor seeks the approval of any branch of government for its policies. The system itself decides what ends its policies are aimed at and then takes whatever action it sees fit to reach those ends. So there you have it, a brief explanation of many of the reasons this nation needs to abolish the Federal Reserve. And the way to accomplish this task is found in Webster's Dictionary. The word is repudiate, defined as to refuse to acknowledge or to, to refuse to pay to disclaim as debts. There's another word that has bearing on the point. It's called repudiation. And it is defined as the disowning of a debt. All America has to do is use the dictionary and repudiate the debt owed to the Federal Reserve. The government can simply repudiate the debt, which means the government says that we're no longer going to accept it as valid. Now, I'm certain that some are saying that an honorable nation would pay its debts. And I say, yes, that is true. But please let me remind you of the words of Congressman McFadden. I charge them with the crime, the crime of having treasonably conspired against the people. Yes, the Federal Reserve is guilty of nearly a 100 years of crimes against the American people. And the Federal Reserve should be abolished to prevent them from committing the same crimes again. And the quickest way would be to repudiate the debt. Let the private reserve go bankrupt. This is called justice. Justice. And may I suggest that you join with me in a one-man crusade and start calling the Federal Reserve what it is, and that is the private reserve whenever you discuss it, because that is exactly what it is. Perhaps this last thought by President Jefferson will summarize all that I've covered so far. This is what he wrote. If the American people ever allow private banks to control the issue of currency, first by inflation and then by deflation, the banks and corporations that will grow up around them will deprive the people of their property until their children will wake up homeless on the continent their fathers conquered.
But in 1913, America did exactly that. We allowed private banks to control the issue of currency and the process of depriving us of our property is underway. Now, I've got one last quote to offer you, but before I do, I would like to ask you a favor. If you agree with me that this presentation is a simple way to understand the private reserve, please help me by getting it a massive distribution. Please make copies and give them away. If you're a high school or college student, give one to every teacher or professor you have, even if they're not in the business college. Ask them to watch it, and then make certain you ask what they think of it. Ask your friends to watch it by giving them copies or by inviting them to your home to watch it together. Upload it onto the Internet, and then send links to everyone you know. May I suggest that you send copies of this DVD to the opinion makers, such as your local television and radio stations, newspapers, corporation leaders, etc., because these people have access to people that most of us can never reach. Send a copy to your congressmen and senators, but ask their staff to watch it before they pass it on, and then ask them to ask their congressman or senator what they're going to do about the private reserve. If your city has an access cable station, make arrangements with them to show this. Because quite simply, this DVD can have a dramatic effect on the thinking of America. And all America will thank you for your efforts. Now, I would like to summarize all that I've covered so far with this last quotation from the writings of Will Durant, an American writer and historian, who wrote this. Those who manage money manage all. Those who manage money manage all. I would like to draw this speech to a close with this hopefully amusing photograph that has made the rounds of the Internet some time ago. It shows a hunter sleeping with his rifle in his lap and a deer sneaking in while he's asleep to eat his lunch. Please notice that the hunter is asleep. I'd like to use this photograph to illustrate a point. We are the sleeping hunter. And while we are sleeping, these international bankers that we've been discussing are secretly sneaking in to eat our lunch. And my admonition to you is this. It is time to wake up. Thank you so very much. And may God bless America.